You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. Hi, I'm Brett Arsenault, Chief Information Security Officer at a little company called Microsoft. Recently, I was approached by some customers who are really struggling with the complexities of the security threat landscape. In particular, just looking for practical advice. With the increase in threats, with the changing landscape and digital transformation that's going on, people were really trying to understand from experts what could they do practically that would actually help them in this new threat landscape we're living in today. And I realized how fortunate I am to have met with some of the sharpest minds on this topic, whether it's competitors, vendors, internal Microsoft people, government people, who all share a vision for a mission on how to better protect ourselves. This created an opportunity to take some of those learnings and share them in this podcast series. Hopefully you'll find this interesting. I know I'll learn a lot from it. I'd like to introduce you to Mark Rasanovich, Chief Technology Officer and Technical Fellow for Microsoft Azure, Microsoft's global cloud platform. I've had the pleasure of working side by side with this gentleman for the past 12 years, and our paths have crossed for almost 22 years. Mark, talk to me a little bit about what you do in the Azure team. So my role is leading technical strategy and architecture for the Azure platform, which takes me all over the place from our data center designs to our servers, infrastructure, software, platform as a service, cloud native computing, Azure resource manager. That's the bulk of my time is spent working with engineers on that. But I also do a lot of stuff like working with customers and internally and externally on what they need out of Azure platform and making sure it meets their needs. Well, yeah, and then if that's not enough, you occasionally write a few books here and there, uh, fiction and nonfiction books both, right? Yeah, I'm less of that these days than in the past. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm sure I'm sure super busy. I think in addition, though, I think from crossing paths, obviously we've done some interesting working on some hard problems, like when we worked on SAW and high-risk environments and some of the you know, enclaves that we built. But you're not just a technology leader. You've been a great person for us on security and not just at Microsoft, but around the industry. And so I'd really like to focus a little bit on that today, if that's all right with you. Sure. Yeah, very passionate about security and always have been. Yeah, no, I know. It's, it's great. We always have, we've had a few wonderful late night conversations on the topic. And I think just from a context perspective, I was telling people here, I think conversations for me at this company start with and then the earth cooled. And I was working on, uh, I was working on, I came here when we didn't even have a routable protocol and I was working on getting TCP IP as our new standard protocol. And I remember this little place that had created these NT internals and I needed to chain, interrupt 5C chaining sequence I couldn't get the right answer to. So I'm looking for, looking for, looking for, looking for, and I end up using some of your tools to help solve a lot of problems. So one, I owe you great debt of gratitude all the way back into the mid 90s. So I appreciate that. Sure. Well, I'll take you up on that Vino. <laughs> uh, sounds like a great deal. Sounds like a great deal. Hey, just to set sort of expectations with the audience and sort of from a data perspective, your first book was Zero Day. And I always liked the concept of Zero Day. But sadly, when we look even last year, over 60% of the breaches that we saw were from unpatched vulns, like vulns that were known that had patches that people didn't do. And the other 40% weren't even Zero Day. There were other things. So I think that's an interesting backdrop. I'd love to hear your perspective on what you've learned. You know, we go through a lot of incident reviews and just some of your perspective on what we've learned recently. 
Yep. I mean, well, uh, you've hit on it. The fact is that bread and butter security is the place to start. And if you manage the basics, you'll cover a tremendous amount of ground. And the fact is that most breaches are failures to just cover the basics. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's true. And I think it's the pedestrian part of the job. Like I love all the amazing AI and everything else, but we do have to help people do more in that space. And you know, what do you think we can do? And what would you suggest people do to make sure they can get to that work and, and prioritize that work? Well, when you say what we can do, I think what you're speaking, what Microsoft can do. Absolutely. And a big part of it is education, which I think we do a lot of all over Microsoft documentation and our conferences talking about security best practices and even our field working directly with customers on getting them up to good security baselines. We also build security into our tools in pretty fundamental ways, like in Azure, close to my turf, Azure Security Center with the secure score is a way to help people focus on the basics because you're going to raise your secure score by covering the basics. And then the other part is just the support in the products for the security basics, including automated patch management, which we support in Azure. In fact, uh, with Azure Virtual Machines, automated patch management with MFA support built into Azure Active Directory, the Authenticator app. So just from that perspective, it kind of spans from education to giving you insights into how you can improve your security posture, whether it's using our products or somebody else's products, as well as ensuring that our products are a way for you to be able to meet those baselines. I think you raise a good point. Well, I think when you first came here, I think it was in 06, I was a CTO for e-commerce and we were patching all of our own servers. We were patching all of our exchange servers. And like today, all of that's dealt with by the various cloud providers. So I think there's a question about, you know, if you look at the evolution, even over the last 10 years, as people look at convergence, do we think about, and how do you think about cloud security as a first choice as opposed to it wasn't the first choice 10 years ago? Maybe some of the examples there. Well, that's been an interesting evolution because when I started in Azure, there was a bunch of concerns around moving to cloud. A big one was obviously unknown and lack of skills and well, how is it going to transform how my organization works in a basic way. But then it was like security was considered a big risk. If I move to the cloud, I'm going to be less secure. And then starting about four or five years ago, as the cloud capabilities got more mature, people started to change to actually moving to the cloud is going to get me into a better security posture. And I think that that is hard to argue the case that that's not true today, especially with all of the capabilities now that have come online for you to be able to create a deployment in a cloud that is completely isolated off the internet, that has security monitoring automatically built into it and alerting and the insights that you get out of Security Center, like I mentioned, that it's become easier than ever I mean, in fact, one of the things that I pointed out to customers, I've always believed that would make the cloud a better place for security is the fact that the cloud is built on consistent APIs across all resources. And when you take a look at an on-prem environment, the way that they've evolved pretty organically, they're extremely heterogeneous with respect to the servers and the network topologies and the policies that are in place and the software that's running in different areas. And my challenge to CISOs coming from an on-prem world was if I walked into your colo and pointed at a server, would you be able to tell me what that server is doing and what it's running? And would you be able to recreate it if something happened to it? And in many cases, the answer would be no, 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 or I don't know. But in the cloud being API-driven, every resource you can go and get an inventory of. And 
because of the automation that's in place with modern cloud development, it's easier to rebuild something if it fails. In fact, that's the uh, the core philosophy. But even if you're lifting and shifting and you've got those enterprise workloads that are bespoke, still, you know what it's talking to on the network using standard cloud APIs. You know what other resources it's talking to. So I think that the argument has changed a lot in the last 10 years when it comes to cloud and security. Yeah, it's interesting. And for folks who don't know, I'm Mark's customer in this scenario because we run all the services as well as, you know, we have the sort of tautological part of the conversation. But if you remember, I think your point on the four to five years ago, as we were moving Microsoft digital transformation and all the tools, security was a blocker for a number of things. And then we got to where we had all the security capabilities and more that we needed. And yet the migration stopped. I don't know if you remember when that happened. Mm-hmm. They're like, okay, well, security is not the blocker. So what's happening do you remember? I know you won't because I probably never shared it. Fui. This is the F-F-U-U-E-E. It's one of the most amazing things we learned when that happened, which is why when we met all the security controls, did the migration stop? And Fui is the six reasons, F-F-U-U-E-E, the six reasons why anybody, boss, subordinate, spouse, children, grandparents, don't do something. They fear it. They don't think it's fair. They don't understand it. There's not a sense of urgency. They're entitled or they're exhausted. And so when we saw that pitch, we thought people didn't understand. So we gave them more training internally. And to your point, they were fearful of a job or in many cases, they were just exhausted. And we had to take a completely different approach to to now we're at 95% of all of our apps have moved onto the cloud. So that's a really good point about the capabilities versus moving, you know, helping people continue to move through that, that life cycle. I don't remember that acronym, but I've written it down because that's a great one. But yeah. uh, I'll do credit. It belongs to a guy named Dick Buttersfield, but it's super helpful. I use it at home. Not always successfully, but I try. I'd be really curious, though, because you mentioned a really good point about the API component of the cloud and and the resilience piece, right? Like all this stuff we used to have to do, like with your offsite provider, with dark fiber and spare compute. And now in PaaS services, you just click a few buttons and you have this resiliency capability. But that data... Maybe some examples about how we really think about customers really use that data to create that continuous feedback loop and continue to create the most secure experience possible. Yeah, well, I mean, part of the promise of cloud has been agility. Agility for customers because of the on-demand self-service nature of it. But it's also agility in terms of getting new capabilities and the agility that we get from the continuous deployment systems that we have in place that are based off of the telemetry we get. The telemetry that comes from just the direct observability of how customers are using the product, which gives us insights into which features are tough to use, which ones are easy to use, which ones is nobody paying attention to, where they're having issues with performance or scalability, go right back into a feedback loop that helps us improve the product. And then those improvements can show up. I mean, you mentioned earlier, like the patching and exchange. I mean, on the back end of Office 365, New features roll out in Office 365 basically on a weekly cadence. And that is customers just get it. I mean, you remember as any anybody running enterprise IT does, new version of software comes out and it's a many months long process or even years of first validating it and then doing a pilot of it and then starting to roll it out broadly across the infrastructure. That's been basically eliminated in the cloud. And so the pace of innovation and the pace of improvements in areas like reliability, scalability, and security, the basics, has accelerated to 
levels that make the old era look really slow moving. We started this reflective view on 2020 and why do this podcast in 2021? And obviously with pandemic, we had massive digital transformation around the world. And I obviously think about if we had been doing uh, all the things we were doing on-prem, it would have been a very different outcome in terms of technology capability and what people needed to do. Just the scale unit problem would have been really been devastating for companies. Even our own company would have really struggled without that. Yeah, totally. Basically, the services weren't to the level of maturity needed to support work from home, learn from home. Yeah. Just even between five and 10 years ago. And then the scale of the systems underneath them weren't where they needed to be either to support it. I mean, if COVID had happened 10 years ago or worse, 20 years ago, multiply the problem that we faced with COVID by a couple of orders of magnitude, like yeah. the world just would not have been able to function. Yeah, no, I think it had a, a far more devastating impact, both from a physical standpoint as well as an economic standpoint. Which, and I'm not not belittling it. It had a huge impact, and many industries were more impacted than others. But I would say it has been amazing to see the see what's happened in that. Which pushes me to you a question: You think about what's happened in 2020, and people realize they can work remotely. How do you think about that now? Like two things. One, hybrid workforce, right? Like so now people have realized they can be productive in in more remote locations. And cloud's been a big part of that. The whole intelligent edge and client to cloud and all that has made it super helpful. But how do you as a leading engineer think about that with your people? And then I'm going to come back into a workforce issue in a minute, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. So I've got just from me and my team, the office of the CTO, I've grown probably 50% since COVID lockdowns happened. So that means 50% of the people, many of them from outside the company, have not physically met anybody else on the team and yet have come in and gotten very productive very quickly to the level of productivity that's no different than pre-COVID times of somebody onboarding into a team like ours. So it's just been really amazing to see the fact that from a perspective of remote work, nothing slow down. Now, I think that there's going to be big challenges as we go to hybrid in that human nature is human nature. And the bandwidth of communication when you're in person with somebody, especially in a group meeting, right? One-on-ones is a little bit different because you can focus directly. But if you're in a meeting with a bunch of people and you're in a conference room, you can instantly get signals from all over the room. Right. But if you're on a Zoom call or a Teams call, those signals get lost. And then you don't have the opportunity walking into the conference room of, hey, Brett, what's going on? Kind of side conversations. So the advantage of being in person is, I think, real. And it's going to be tough to not make the people that are remote feel the way they did pre-COVID, which was, hey, everybody in the room is ignoring me. (laughs) Right, right, right. (laughs) Hey, on that note, you know, you talk about your team growing and all the other things. Customers continue to tell you how they really struggle about finding qualified talent, finding security talent. And obviously, one thing is having your security team and mine work for customers is awesome. But how do you think about that just in general about getting talent and driving through talent in a hybrid work environment? You mentioned a little bit about the teams you've hired so far, but any other thoughts you have on helping people and how they think about attracting talent? I mean, a few things that Microsoft's done to try to attract talent is just the culture that we've adopted of course, driven by Satya of diversity inclusion as mm-hmm. I think a key part of it. The corporate culture, I think, matters a lot to people these days, whereas in the past, it was something that wasn't really even explicitly considered mm-hmm. as a, a draw for especially people coming out of college. But when it comes to skilling, the world has changed a lot, like we've talked about, especially for anybody that's in IT over the last decade. 
tremendous amount. And I think this is the challenge that I see talking to customers that are doing cloud migrations, many of them doing it as fast as they can. And what's slowing them down is skills. Yep. And this is where platforms like Microsoft Learn, which have guided learning paths for different areas of specialty, like I'm a cloud admin or I'm a cloud security architect to get skills. I mean, this is part of Microsoft's broader goals to skill the workforce. I think Brad Smith just published a, about a month ago an update on our commitments back from 2020, which was to skill 25 million people. Right. And we'd actually gotten to 30 million. And there's a skilling platform being integrated onto LinkedIn to help skill the modern IT workforce for this new landscape that everybody's having to face. I was thinking, you know, if you were to give advice to a security practitioner, some actionable things, skilling is obviously important. And we touched a little bit at the beginning, but if there were three things you'd tell people, go do it and go do it now, what would it be? Basically, the three things I think would be the two that we already talked about. One is MFA. Actually, we talked about all three. MFA, for yep. sure. Getting into a non-fishable posture. And NFA doesn't necessarily completely get you there, but it gets you past the stupid fishing. And then the second one would be patching. And this is a tough one, especially with on-prem environments and fragile IT that exists a lot. But it is, like you said, just forcing yourself into this, we need to patch and have systems in place to do pilot tests of updates, kind of a CICD pipeline for patching so that you can quickly roll that out. And every time there's patches, it's not a unique kind of uh, situation to deal with, but it's just part of a process like we do in the cloud. When we roll out new software, it's just part of a process. It's not a special once every three years kind of situation. Right, right. And then the final one is get visibility into your environment with logging and not just logging to dev null, but actually logging to someplace where you can actually run analytics on the logs to get insight into what's happening. Something like Sentinel really resonated with customers that... Should you just remind people what Sentinel is? Yeah, so Azure Sentinel is uh, basically, I, I think of it as the realization of a security data lake. It is a place where you can bring in and fuse data from all your different sources of security monitoring, whether it's your cloud services, including, of course, Azure and Office 365 and other Microsoft services, but also you can use leverage connectors. I think we've got, I don't know, 50 or 70 something yeah. like connectors yep. to bring in data from your own on-premises systems and services and put it in that lake and then get a whole ton of capabilities right off of that where now you're not siloed between data that's from one service with data from another service, but actually it's part of a lake where you can see activity and correlations across those different services because in the modern world, threat actors are moving across your services. They're not standing in one. And yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I think it's really key to view it that way. Yeah, that's a great point. So you said MFA and obviously the patching component and the pervasive telemetry, I think, is super interesting. Not, not really possible the way we could do it today. Like the scale unit that you can do that at and in getting the accretive value of the disparate data, like like a diverse workforce is really important, but it turns out diverse data is as important. And so being able to correlate across that's super helpful. That's a that's a really good way to look at it. Hey, on that note though, if we look at the MFA adoption, it's still low, right? Yeah. I'm curious, like from your perspective, for people who are out there, how do we help people? What should they do and what can we do to help them continue to drive that up? 
Because there's there's awareness, but that like people, uh, someone said this to me once about training or something. They said, well, you, you know, people don't care. And I said, well, if they don't know, they can't care. So you have to make sure they know. Like Secure Square makes you know, right? Yeah. But then you go from knowing to being able to do something about it. So obviously we have a lot to do. We can help people really move that adoption up. Do you have thoughts on how we move adoption of, of 2FA up? And not just for Microsoft platforms and other things. Yeah, have it be the default. Make it so that people have to opt out of it. Because right now, I mean, I think even still, it's like opt into MFA rather than opt out. Opt out and when yeah. you have to opt into something, it's like, okay, so get to convince somebody, here's why you need to opt in, why it's better for you. And it's going to take a little more work. And then it's just easier it is to not bother and to look at that as friction. But opting out, at least that's in your face as, hey, this is the best practice. And if you want to opt out of it, you're kind of signing up for that risk explicitly. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a, that's a good thing to drive that awareness on, on what people are doing in that space. One other thing I was just curious, and this is, you know, as we prognosticate going forward, we've seen sort of the way threats and the way they evolve to be faster blended on software. And we're seeing supply chain, obviously, in the last year, having a similar model. And then we think hard about like a lot of the things that we do for users and, and endpoints. Like there's a lot we're going to probably see changing the way we think about developer pipeline. You mentioned on the GitHub stuff, there's some pretty amazing things we can do. But any thoughts on as we have citizen developer and other folks, how we help them uh, fall into the pit of success of secure coding? Yeah, well, I think that there's a few things. And, and I've been involved across Microsoft's initiatives that have even gone out and become cross-industry initiatives to help secure the supply chain where developers are a key part of that supply chain and developers are sitting there producing code, which is consumed downstream by some enterprises and cloud providers. And they're also consuming things from upstream too, to build their software. So this is interconnected graph of dependencies that flow from some dev that might be sitting in part-time on the weekends, contributing to some project into critical infrastructure way downstream. So yeah, yeah, I think that there's a few things that we're doing there. One is education. And this is part of the cross-industry stuff that we started last year, which is the formation of the Open Source Security Foundation. OSSF is part of the Linux Foundation. Though it's called Open Source Security Foundation, it applies to closed-source software development as well. So it just happens to be called that because the focus is on the open-source ecosystem, which so many companies, including Microsoft, have deep dependencies on. But the education, so if you go to OSSF, there's education on security best practices aimed at open source developers, the people that are contributing to GitHub projects on the weekend that end up becoming critical infrastructure. Right. There's also efforts on standardizing software bill of materials. And I think that this is a, an area to watch, especially given solar winds, this yep. solar gate focus that this has brought onto it. And there's been many incidents related to supply chain and bad actors infiltrating software supply chain over time is having some record of provenance and ultimately reproducible build evidence so that you know how did this thing get produced? Did it get produced in a trustworthy way? Did the people that contributed code to it, did they have multi-factor authentication enabled? Right. Which gives us some assurance that they were following security best practices. From a healthy device. From a healthy device, yep. From, yep. And from yep. a healthy device. So all of these things, I think that this is what you're going to see a lot of investment across the industry over the next five to 10 years to get us into a place where we have better supply chain tracking. And like I said, it's not just for open source security, but closed source as well. 
Yeah. And I think to your point, I think people should go look at that because, you know, many of the people who might think are our competitors, we all have a view of rising tide lifts all boats and are contributing to that model. So I think you get the best of both worlds in that scenario for sure. Yeah. I'd love your thoughts on virtualization and the evolution of virtualization and what it can do for us. As we start thinking about endpoint virtualization and more like Windows virtualization or the Citrix has come into its own and this idea of of that model of if you're going to have something that you trust as an endpoint, you might put your trusted endpoint in the cloud. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're getting to the point where uh, the network computer idea from the 90s that actually the infrastructure is there now to support that idea. So you've been leading pilots on getting some of Microsoft workforce onto virtual desktops yep. built onto Windows virtual desktop service that's running on Azure. But we've also been talking about in the context of even developers, developer workstations as a service, and all the benefits you can get out of that from the fact that you can have a provisioned device instantly yep. to it's not just uh, provisioned, but it's with everything you need, but it's constantly upgraded as well, accessible from anywhere in the world at the same yeah. time. So. There's a, a lot of benefits from a security, reliability, productivity perspective, and finally, the infrastructure in terms of the cloud services to support the scalability of it, as well as the internet connections now that we've got to be able to access it basically from anywhere have made it so that its time is finally showing up here. Yeah, no, I think it'll be fascinating to see how it plays. And that goes back to culture. You think about your beginnings and some of the stuff we talked about on Win32, and just being so on-prem focused to now we're virtualizing the cloud, virtualizing on endpoint. And and you're right, you need, but you needed the global infrastructure to make it as secure and reliable as we'll need it to be for people to be productive. So yep. it'll be a pretty fascinating future. Any closing comments, Mark? It's obviously so awesome to have you on board. And I appreciate everything you're doing for the company and our customers and me as your customer. But any other comments you have? Closing thoughts is... This is really a fun time to be in technology. This is what I tell people as they're coming to Microsoft as well. Enterprise IT was actually pretty much defined before I even showed up on the scene. It was a matter of incremental improvement to the existing architecture and systems and way of delivering software. And what cloud brought was a big disruption that we're still not done defining what that disruption is, what it looks like. And so like a service like Azure Sentinel, which just showed up two years ago, and it still hasn't realized, I think, the full potential of the vision that we have for it. If you come into technology now, you're part of this disruption. You're helping to define what the future is going to look like. I don't know if at some point the weight of the all of the systems that we're putting in place ends up becoming like a foundation that's in cement, kind of the way that enterprise systems ended up becoming. But now's the time to have fun defining it. I think you're spot on. Hey, a fun question. Mm-hmm. Any new hobbies in the last year or any chance you're uh, writing another book and you can't answer it? You can't, you can't answer best read book as being any of the ones you've written. So anything you've read that you would say has been super exciting or you'd recommend people read? Let's see. Well, new hobbies. I drew a lot when I was growing up and I didn't draw for 20 years and COVID got me to draw, revisiting my drawing again. In fact, if you go to my Twitter feed, I posted some of the, the drawings that I did over uh, lockdown. Well, from a guy who can't draw a straight line with a, with a ruler, I, I'm impressed. So I think it's awesome. Well, thanks for your time. All right. Thanks, Brett. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. I look forward to our next episode. And remember, stay safe and stay secure.
This week on the Microsoft Threat Intelligence Podcast, join us as we dig deep into the XZ backdoor with its finder, Andreas Freund, and senior security researcher, Thomas Rochia. Be sure to listen in and follow us at msthreatintelpodcast.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts.